Are the dreamlike musings of a sensitive intellectual truly predictive or merely the result of an overactive imagination? George Eliot, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. Many, many thanks to our 340 members who support us regularly. Each episode of the Classic Tales podcast is initially downloaded over 10,000 times in the course of a week from the time it's released. And we are so grateful to all of our supporters who have stepped up and helped to sustain us. 2020 marks the beginning of our 14th season, and we'd love to keep going. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. I am working on an initiative to make the Classic Tales audiobooks free for public schools. Thank you to everyone who has visited the website, purchased audiobooks, or recommended or reviewed us. It goes a long way. Anything you can do to help us grow and sustain ourselves will help us put the classics into the ears of the next generation. Thank you. This week we are showcasing the amazing work of George Eliot, the pseudonym of Mary Ann Evans. A good friend of mine, Morag Kawasaki, did a recent research project showcasing the role of women in Romantic and Victorian literature. George Eliot, Mary Ann Evans, came up in her research time and time again as the most important female author at this time. Some key takeaways were women weren't judged against the published men of the time. They were only reviewed against each other. So even though they were regarded as a lower class of writer, they were held to a much higher standard than the male writers of the time. Also, Eliot not only spoke but translated four languages, English, German, Greek, and Hebrew. Henry James, when writing about Eliot's novel Middlemarch, pointed to the constant presence of thought, of generalizing instinct, of brain, and he paid passionate tribute to Eliot's intellectual vigor, her immense facility, her exemption of cerebral lassitude. Today's story is about an intellectual who, after suffering an illness, realizes he has gained the ability to read the thoughts of those around him. His name is Latimer, which means one who interprets Latin. Even this person's name is indicative of understanding that which is hidden to most others. The command of the language and this ability of Eliot's to see what others don't are elegantly evident. I hope you like it. 
App users can read Morag's entire research project, The Journey of the Romantic and Victorian Female Author, in their special features for this week's episode. Now for our personal moment. Well, for Christmas, I got an Instant Pot, which is like a computerized pressure cooker, and I love it. We've tried Mongolian beef, steel-cut oats. We've had a ball with this thing. And one thing I did last night was I modified my Hungarian goulash recipe to work in the Instant Pot, and it came out great. So, actually, if you have an Instant Pot and you want to try my Hungarian goulash recipe, I will be posting it on Facebook later this week. My family just loved it. So, that's our personal moment. And now, The Lifted Veil, Part 1 of 2, by George Eliot. Chapter 1 The time of my end approaches. I have lately been subject to attacks of angina pectoris, and in the ordinary cause of things, my physician tells me, I may fairly hope that my life will not be protracted many months. Unless, then, I am cursed with an exceptional physical constitution, as I am cursed with an exceptional mental character, I shall not much longer groan under the wearisome burthen of this earthly existence. If it were to be otherwise, if I were to live on to the age most men desire and provide for, I should for once have known whether the miseries of delusive expectation can outweigh the miseries of true provision. For I foresee when I shall die, and everything that will happen in my last moments. Just a month from this day, on September 20th, 1850, I shall be sitting in this chair, in this study, at ten o'clock at night, longing to die, weary of incessant insight and foresight, without delusions and without hope just as I am watching a tongue of blue flame rising in the fire, and my lamp is burning low, the horrible contraction will begin at my chest. I shall only have time to reach the bell and pull it violently before the sense of suffocation will come. No one will answer my bell. I know why. My two servants are lovers and will have quarrelled. My housekeeper will have rushed out of the house in a fury two hours before, hoping that Perry will believe she has gone to drown herself. Perry is alarmed at last and has gone out after her. The little scullery maid is asleep on a bench. She never answers the bell. It does not wake her. The sense of suffocation increases. My lamp goes out with a horrible stench. I make a great effort and snatch at the bell again. I long for life and there is no help. I thirsted for the unknown. The thirst is gone. Oh, God, let me stay with the known and be weary of it. I am content. Agony of pain and suffocation. And all the while, the earth, the fields, the pebbly brook of the bottom of the rookery, the fresh scent after the rain, the light of the morning through my chamber window, the warmth of the hearth after the frosty air. Will darkness Close over them forever. Darkness. 
darkness, no pain, nothing but darkness. But I am passing on and on through my darkness. My thought stays in the darkness, but always with a sense of moving onward. Before that time comes, I wish to use my last hours of ease and strength in telling the strange story of my experience. I have never fully unbosomed myself to any human being. I have never been encouraged to trust much in the sympathy of my fellow men. But we have all a chance of meeting with some pity, some tenderness, some charity, when we are dead. It is the living only who cannot be forgiven. The living only from whom men's indulgence and reverence are held off, like the rain by the hard east wind. While my heart beats, bruise it. It is your only opportunity. While the eye can still turn towards you with moist, timid entreaty, freeze it with an icy, unanswering gaze. While the ear that delicate messenger to the inmost sanctuary of the soul, can still take in the tones of kindness, pull it off with hard civility, or sneering compliment, or envious affectation of indifference. While the creative brain can still throb with the sense of injustice, with the yearning for brotherly recognition, make haste. Oppress it with your ill-considered judgments, your trivial comparisons, your careless misrepresentations. The heart will by and by be still. Ubi saeva indignatio, ulterius cor lacerare nequit. The eye will cease to entreat. The ear will be deaf. The brain will have ceased from all wants, as well as from all work. Then... Your charitable speeches may find vent. Then you may remember and pity the toil and struggle and the failure. Then you may give due honour to the work achieved. Then you may find extenuation for errors and may consent to bury them. That is a trivial schoolboy text. Why do I dwell on it? It has little reference to me. For I shall leave no works behind me for men to honour. I have no near relatives who will make up by weeping over my grave for the wounds they inflicted on me when I was among them. It is only the story of my life that will perhaps win a little more sympathy from strangers when I am dead than I ever believed it would obtain from my friends while I was living. My childhood perhaps seems happier to me than it really was, by contrast with all the after-years, for then the curtain of the future was as impenetrable to me as to other children. I had all their delight in the present hour, their sweet indefinite hopes for the morrow, and I had a tender mother. Even now, after the dreary lapse of long years, a slight trace of sensation accompanies the remembrance of her caress as she held me on her knee, her arms round my little body, her cheek pressed on mine. I had a complaint of the eyes that made me blind for a little while, and she kept me on her knee from morning till night. That unequalled love soon vanished out of my life, and even to my childish consciousness it was as if that life had become 
more chill. I rode my little white pony with the groom by my side as before, but there were no loving eyes looking at me as I mounted. No glad arms opened to me when I came back. Perhaps I missed my mother's love more than most children of seven or eight would have done, to whom the other pleasures of life remained as before, for I was certainly a very sensitive child. I remember, still, the mingled trepidation and delicious excitement with which I was affected by the tramping of the horses on the pavement in the echoing stables, by the loud resonance of the groom's voices, by the booming bark of the dogs, as my father's carriage thundered under the archway of the courtyard, by the din of the gong as it gave notice of luncheon and dinner, the measured tramp of soldiery which I sometimes heard, for my father's house lay near a county town where there were large barracks, made me sob and tremble. And yet when they were gone past, I longed for them to come back again. I fancy my father thought me an odd child, and had little fondness for me, though he was very careful in fulfilling what he regarded as a parent's duties. But he was already past the middle of life, and I was not his only son. My mother had been his second wife, and he was five and forty when he married her. He was a firm, unbending, intensely orderly man, in root and stem a banker, but with a flourishing graft of the active landholder, aspiring to county influence. One of those people who were always like themselves from day to day, who are uninfluenced by the weather, and neither know melancholy nor high spirits. I held him in great awe, and appeared more timid and sensitive in his presence than at other times, a circumstance which, perhaps, helped to confirm him in the intention to educate me on a different plan from the prescriptive one with which he had complied in the case of my elder brother, already a tall youth at Eton. My brother was to be his representative and successor. He must go to Eton and Oxford, for the sake of making connections, of course. My father was not a man to underrate the bearing of Latin satirists or Greek dramatists on the attainment of an aristocratic position. But intrinsically he had slight esteem for those dead but sceptred spirits, having qualified himself for forming an independent opinion by reading Potter's Aeschylus and dipping into Francis's Horace. To this negative view he added a positive one, derived from a recent connection with mining speculations, namely that a scientific education was the really useful training for a younger son. Moreover, it was clear that a shy, sensitive boy like me was not fit to encounter the rough experience of a public school. Mr. Leatherall had said so very decidedly. Mr. Leatherall was a large man in spectacles, who one day took my small head between his large hands and pressed it here and there in an exploratory, auspicious manner, then placed each of his great thumbs on my temples and pushed me a little away from him and stared at me with glittering spectacles. The contemplation appeared to displease him, for he frowned sternly and said to my father, drawing his thumbs across my eyebrows, The deficiency is there, sir, there and here. 
he added, touching the upper sides of my head. Here is the excess. That must be brought out, sir, and this must be laid to sleep. I was in a state of tremor, partly at the vague idea that I was the object of reprobation, partly in agitation of my first hatred, hatred of this big, spectacled man, who pulled my head about as if he wanted to buy and cheapen it. I am not aware how much Mr. Leatherall had to do with the system afterwards adopted towards me, but it was presently clear that private tutors, natural history, science, and the modern languages were the appliances by which the defects of my organization were to be remedied. I was very stupid about machines, so I was to be greatly occupied with them. I had no memory for classification, so it was particularly necessary that I should study systematic zoology and botany. I was hungry for human deeds and humane motions, so I was to be plentifully crammed with the mechanical powers, the elementary bodies, and the phenomena of electricity and magnetism. A better constituted boy would certainly have profited under my intelligent tutors, with their scientific apparatus, and would doubtless have found the phenomena of electricity and magnetism as fascinating as I was every Thursday, assured they were. As it was, I could have paired off, for ignorance of whatever was taught me, with the worst Latin scholar that was ever turned out of a classical academy. I read Plutarch and Shakespeare and Don Quixote by the sly, and supplied myself in that way with wandering thoughts, while my tutor was assuring me that an improved man, as distinguished from an ignorant one, was a man who knew the reason why water ran downhill. I had no desire to be this improved man. I was glad of the running water. I could watch it and listen to it gurgling among the pebbles and bathing the bright green water plants by the hour together. I did not want to know why it ran. I had perfect confidence that there were good reasons for what was so very beautiful. Uh, there is no need to dwell on this part of my life. I have said enough to indicate that my nature was of the sensitive, unpractical order, and that it grew up in an uncongenial medium, which could never foster it into happy, healthy development. When I was sixteen I was sent to Geneva to complete my course of education, and the change was a very happy one to me, for the first sight of the Alps, with the setting sun on them, as we descended the Jura, seemed to me like an entrance into heaven, and the three years of my life there was spent in a perpetual sense of exaltation, as if from a draught of delicious wine, at the presence of nature in all her awful loveliness. You will think, perhaps, that I must have been a poet, from this early sensibility to nature. But my lot was not so happy as that. A poet pours forth his song and believes in the listening ear and answering soul, to which his song will be floated sooner or later. But the poet's sensibility without his voice, the poet's sensibility that finds no vent but in silent tears on the sunny bank, when the noonday light sparkles on the water, or in the inward shudder at the sound of harsh human tones, the sight of a cold human eye. This dumb passion brings with it 
the fatal solitude of soul in the society of one's fellow men. My least solitary moments were those in which I pushed off in my boat, at evening, towards the centre of the lake. It seemed to me that the sky and the glowing mountain tops and the wide blue water surrounded me with a cherishing love, such as no human face has shed on me since my mother's love had vanished out of my life. I used to do as Jean-Jacques did, lie down in my boat and let it glide where it would, while I looked up at the departing glow, leaving one mountain top after the other, as if the prophet's chariot of fire were passing over them on its way to the home of light. Then, when the white summits were all sad and corpse-like, I had to push homeward, for I was under careful surveillance, and was allowed no late wanderings. This disposition of mine was not favourable to the formation of intimate friendships among the numerous youths of my own age, who were always to be found studying at Geneva. Yet I made one such friendship, and, singularly enough, it was with a youth whose intellectual tendencies were the very reverse of my own. I shall call him Charles Meunier. His real surname, an English one, for he was of English extraction, having since become celebrated. He was an orphan, who lived on a miserable pittance while he pursued the medical studies for which he had a special genius. Strange, that with my vague mind, susceptible and unobservant, hating inquiry and given up to contemplation, I should have been drawn towards a youth whose strongest passion was science. But the bond was not an intellectual one, it came from a source that can happily blend the stupid with the brilliant, the dreamy with the practical. It came from community of feeling. Charles was poor and ugly, derided by Genevese gamins, and not acceptable in drawing-rooms. I saw that he was isolated, as I was, though from a different cause, and stimulated by a sympathetic resentment, I made timid advances towards him. It is enough to say that there sprang up as much comradeship between us as our different habits would allow, and in Charles's rare holidays we went up to the Salève together, or took the boat to Vevey, while I listened dreamily to the monologues in which he unfolded his bold conceptions of future experiment and discovery. I mingled them confusedly in my thought, with glimpses of blue water and delicate floating cloud with the notes of birds and the distant glitter of the glacier. He knew quite well that my mind was half absent, yet he liked to talk to me in this way. For don't we talk of our hopes and our projects, even to dogs and birds, when they love us? I have mentioned this one friendship because of its connection with a strange and terrible scene which I shall have to narrate in my subsequent life. This happier life at Geneva was put an end to by a severe illness, which is partly a blank to me, partly a time of dimly remembered suffering, with the presence of my father by my bed from time to time. Then came the languid monotony of convalescence, the days gradually breaking into variety and distinctness, as my strength enabled me to take longer and longer drives. On one of these more vividly remembered days, my father said to me as he sat beside my sofa, 
When you are quite well enough to travel, Latimer, I shall take you home with me. The journey will amuse you and do you good, for I shall go through the Tyrol and Austria, and you will see many new places. Our neighbours, the Fillmores, are come. Alfred will join us at Basel, and we shall all go together to Vienna and back by Prague. My father was called away before he had finished his sentence, and he left my mind resting on the word Prague, with a strange sense that a new and wondrous scene was breaking upon me. A city under the broad sunshine, that seemed to me as if it were the summer sunshine of a long past century, arrested in its course, unrefreshed for ages by dews of night, or the rushing rain cloud, scorching the dusty, weary, time-eaten grandeur of a people doomed to live on in the stale repetition of memories, like deposed and superannuated kings. In their regal golden woven tatters, the city looked so thirsty that the broad river seemed to me a sheet of metal, and the blackened statues, as I passed under their blank gaze, along the unending bridge, with their ancient garments and their saintly crowns, seemed to me the real inhabitants and owners of this place, while the busy, trivial men and women hurrying to and fro. Were a swarm of ephemeral visitants infesting it for a day. It is such grim, stony beings as these, I thought, who were the fathers of ancient, faded children, in those tanned, time-fretted dwellings that crowd the steep before me, who pay their court in the worn and crumbling pomp of the palace, which stretches its monotonous length on the height, who worship wearily in the stifling air of the churches. Urged by no fear or hope, but compelled by their doom, to be ever old, and undying, to live on in the rigidity of habit, as they live on in perpetual midday, without the repose of night, or the new birth of morning. A stunning clang of metal suddenly thrilled through me, and I became conscious of the objects in my room again. One of the fire irons had fallen as Pierre opened the door to bring me my draft. My heart was palpitating violently, and I begged Pierre to leave my draft beside me. I would take it presently. As soon as I was alone again, I began to ask myself whether I had been sleeping. Was this a dream? This wonderfully distinct vision, minute in its distinctness, down to a patch of rainbow light on the pavement. Transmitted through a coloured lamp, in the shape of a star, of a strange city quite unfamiliar to my imagination, I had seen no picture of Prague. It lay in my mind as a mere name, with vaguely remembered historical associations, ill-defined memories of imperial grandeur, and religious wars. Nothing of this sort had ever occurred in my dreaming experience before. For I had often been humiliated because my dreams were only saved from being utterly disjointed and commonplace by the frequent terrors of nightmare. But I could not believe that I had been asleep, for I remember distinctly the gradual breaking in of the vision upon me, like the new images in a dissolving view, or the growing distinctness of the landscape as the sun lifts up the veil of the morning mist. And while I was conscious of this 
incipient vision, I was also conscious that Pierre came to tell my father Mr. Fillmore was waiting for him, and that my father hurried out of the room. No, it was not a dream, was it? The thought was full of tremulous exultation. Was it the poet's nature in me, hitherto only a troubled, yearning sensibility, now manifesting itself suddenly as spontaneous creation? Surely it was in this way that Homer saw the plain of Troy, that Dante saw the abodes of the departed, that Milton saw the earthward flight of the tempter. Was it that my illness had wrought some happy change in my organization, given a firmer tension to my nerves, carried off some dull obstruction? I had often read of such effects, in works of fiction at least, Nay, in genuine biographies, I had read of the subtilizing or exalting influence of some diseases on the mental powers. Did not Novalis feel his inspiration intensified under the progress of consumption? But my mind had dwelt for some time on this blissful idea. It seemed to me that I might perhaps test it by an exertion of my will. The vision had begun when my father was speaking of our going to Prague. I did not for a moment believe it was really a representation of that city. I believed. I hoped it was a picture that my newly liberated genius had painted in fiery haste, with the colours snatched from lazy memory. Suppose I were to fix my mind on some other place, Venice, for example, which was far more familiar to my imagination than Prague, Perhaps the same sort of result would follow. I concentrated my thoughts on Venice. I stimulated my imagination with poetic memories, and strove to feel myself present in Venice, as I had felt myself present in Prague. But in vain. I was only colouring the canaletto engravings that hung in my old bedroom at home. The picture was a shifting one my mind wandering uncertainly in search of more vivid images. I could see no accident of form or shadow without conscious labour after the necessary conditions. It was all prosaic effort, not rapt passivity, such as I had experienced half an hour before. I was discouraged, but I remembered that inspiration was fitful. For several days I was in a state of excited expectation— watching for a recurrence of my new gift. I sent my thoughts ranging over my world of knowledge, in the hope that they would find some object that would send a reawakening vibration through my slumbering genius. But no, my world remained as dim as ever, and that flash of strange light refused to come again, though I watched for it with palpitating eagerness. My father accompanied me every day in a drive, and a gradually lengthening walk as my powers of walking increased, and one evening he had agreed to come and fetch me at twelve the next day, that we might go together to select a musical box, and other purchases rigorously demanded of a rich Englishman visiting Geneva. He was one of the most punctual of men and bankers, and I was always nervously anxious to be quite ready for him at the appointed time. But to my surprise, at a quarter past twelve, he had not appeared. I felt all the impatience of a convalescent who has nothing particular to do, 
and who has just taken a tonic in the prospect of immediate exercise that would carry off the stimulus. Unable to sit still and reserve my strength, I walked up and down the room, looking out on the current of the Rhone, just where it leaves the dark blue lake, but thinking all the while of the possible causes that could detain my father. Suddenly I was conscious that my father was in the room, but not alone. There were two persons with him. Strange. I had heard no footstep. I had not seen the door open. But I saw my father, and at his right hand our neighbour, Mrs. Fillmore, whom I remembered very well, though I had not seen her for five years. She was a commonplace middle-aged woman, in silk and cashmere. But the lady on the left of my father was not more than twenty, a tall, slim, willowy figure, with luxuriant blonde hair, arranged in cunning braids and folds, that looked almost too massive for the slight figure and the small-featured, thin-lipped face they crowned. But the face had not a girlish expression. The features were sharp, the pale grey eyes at once acute, restless, and sarcastic. They were fixed on me in half-smiling curiosity, and I felt a painful sensation as if a sharp wind were cutting me. The pale green dress, and the green leaves that seemed to form a border about her pale blonde hair, made me think of a water nixie, for my mind was full of German lyrics, and this pale, fatal-eyed woman with the green weeds looked like a birth from some cold, sedgy stream, the daughter of an aged river. "'Well, Latimer, you thought me long,' my father said. But while the last word was in my ears, the whole group vanished, and there was nothing between me and the Chinese-printed folding screen that stood before the door. I was cold and trembling. I could only totter forward and throw myself on the sofa— this strange new power had manifested itself again. But was it a power? Might it not rather be a disease, a sort of intermittent delirium, concentrating my energy of brain into moments of unhealthy activity, and leaving my saner hours all the more barren? I felt a dizzy sense of unreality in what my eye rested on. I grasped the bell convulsively, like one trying to free himself from nightmare, and rang it twice. Pierre came with a look of alarm in his face. Monsieur ne se trouve pas bien? he said anxiously. I'm tired of waiting, Pierre, I said, as distinctly and emphatically as I could, like a man determined to be sober in spite of wine. I'm afraid something has happened to my father. He's usually so punctual. Run to the Hôtel de Berg and see if he is there. Pierre left the room at once, with a soothing, Bien, monsieur, and I felt the better for this scene of simple, waking prose. Seeking to calm myself still further, I went into my bedroom, adjoining the salon, and opened a case of eau de cologne, took out a bottle, went through the process of taking out the cork very neatly, and then rubbed the reviving spirit over my hands and forehead, and under my nostrils, drawing a new delight from the scent because I had procured it by slow details of labour, and by no strange, sudden madness. Already I had begun to taste something of the horror that belongs to the lot of a human being 
whose nature is not adjusted to simple human conditions. Still enjoying the scent, I returned to the salon, but it was not unoccupied, as it had been before I left it. In front of the Chinese folding screen there was my father, with Mrs. Fillmore on his right hand, and on his left the slim, blonde-haired girl, with the keen face and the keen eyes fixed on me in half-smiling curiosity. "'Well, Latimer, you thought me long,' my father said. I heard no more, felt no more, till I became conscious that I was lying with my head low on the sofa, Pierre and my father by my side. As soon as I was thoroughly revived, my father left the room and presently returned, saying, "'I've been to tell the ladies how you are, Latimer. They are waiting in the next room. We shall put off our shopping expedition to-day.' Presently, he said, "'That young lady is Bertha Grant, Mrs. Fillmore's orphan niece. Fillmore has adopted her, and she lives with them. So you will have her for a neighbour when we go home, perhaps for a near relation. For there is a tenderness between her and Alfred, I suspect, and I should be gratified by the match, since Fillmore means to provide for her in every way as if she were his daughter. It had not occurred to me that you knew nothing about her living with the Fillmores, he made no further allusion to the fact of my having fainted at the moment of seeing her, and I would not for the world have told him the reason. I shrank from the idea of disclosing to any one what might be regarded as a pitiable peculiarity, most of all from betraying it to my father, who would have suspected my sanity ever after. I do not mean to dwell with particularity on the details of my experience. I have described these two cases at length, because they had definite, clearly traceable results in my afterlot. Shortly after this last occurrence, I think the very next day, I began to be aware of a phase in my abnormal sensibility, to which, from the languid and slight nature of my intercourse with others since my illness, I had not been alive before. This was the obtrusion on my mind of the mental process going forward in first one person, and then another, with whom I happened to be in contact. The vagrant, frivolous ideas and emotions of some uninteresting acquaintance, Mrs. Fillmore, for example, would force themselves on my consciousness like an importunate, ill-played musical instrument, or the loud activity of an imprisoned insect. But this unpleasant sensibility— was fitful, and left me moments of rest, when the souls of my companions were once more shut out from me, and I felt a relief such as silence brings to wearied nerves. I might have believed this importunate insight to be merely a diseased activity of the imagination, but that my prevision of incalculable words and actions proved it to have a fixed relation to the mental process in other minds. But this superadded consciousness, wearying and annoying enough when it urged on me the trivial experience of indifferent people, became an intense pain and grief when it seemed to be opening to me the souls of those who were in a close relation to me. When the rational talk, the graceful attentions, the wittily turned phrases, and the kindly deeds 
which used to make the web of their characters, were seen as if thrust asunder by a microscopic vision that showed all the intermediate frivolities, all the suppressed egoism, all the struggling chaos of puerilities, meanness, vague capricious memories, and indolent makeshift thoughts, from which human words and deeds emerge like leaflets covering a fermenting heap. At Basel, we were joined by my brother Alfred, now a handsome, self-confident man of six-and-twenty, a thorough contrast to my fragile, nervous, ineffectual self. I believe I was held to have a sort of half-womanish, half-ghostly beauty, for the portrait-painters, who are thick as weeds at Geneva, had often asked me to sit to them, and I had been the model of a dying minstrel in a fancy picture. But I thoroughly disliked my own physique, and nothing but the belief that it was a condition of poetic genius would have reconciled me to it. That brief hope was quite fled, and I saw in my face now nothing but the stamp of a morbid organization, framed for passive suffering, too feeble for the sublime resistance of poetic production. Alfred, from whom I had been almost constantly separated, and who in his present stage of character and appearance came before me as a perfect stranger, was bent on being extremely friendly and brother-like to me. He had the superficial kindness of a good-humoured, self-satisfied nature, that fears no rivalry, and has encountered no contrarieties. I am not sure that my disposition was good enough for me to have been quite free from envy towards him, even if our desires had not clashed, and if I had been in the healthy human condition which admits of generous confidence and charitable construction. There must always have been an antipathy between our natures. As it was, he became, in a few weeks, an object of intense hatred to me. And when he entered the room, still more when he spoke, it was as if the sensation of grating metal had set my teeth on edge. My diseased consciousness was more intensely and continually occupied with his thoughts and emotions than with those of any other person who came in my way. I was perpetually exasperated with the petty promptings of his conceit and his love of patronage, with his self-complacent belief in Bertha Grant's passion for him, and his half-pitying contempt for me, seen not in the ordinary indications of intonation and phrase and slight action, which an acute and suspicious mind is on the watch for, but in all their naked, skinless complication. For we were rivals, and our desires clashed, though he was not aware of it. I have said nothing yet of the effect Bertha Grant produced in me on a nearer acquaintance. That effect was chiefly determined by the fact that she made the only exception among all the human beings about me to my unhappy gift of insight. About Bertha I was always in a state of uncertainty. I could watch the expression of her face and speculate on its meaning— I could ask for her opinion with the real interest of ignorance. I could listen for her words and watch for her smile with hope and fear. She had for me the fascination of an unravelled destiny. I say it was this fact 
that chiefly determined the strong effect she produced on me. For in the abstract, no womanly character could seem to have less affinity for that of a shrinking, romantic, passionate youth than Bertha's. She was keen, sarcastic, unimaginative, prematurely cynical, remaining critical and unmoved in the most impressive scenes, inclined to dissect all my favorite poems, and especially contemptuous towards the German lyrics, which were my pet literature at that time. To this moment, I am unable to define my feeling towards her. It was not ordinary boyish admiration, for she was the very opposite, even to the color of her hair, of the ideal woman, who still remained to me the type of loveliness. And she was without that enthusiasm for the great and good, which, even at the moment of her strongest domination over me, I should have declared to be the highest element of character. But there is no tyranny more complete than that which a self-centered negative nature exercises over a morbidly sensitive nature perpetually craving sympathy and support. The most independent people feel the effect of a man's silence in heightening their value for his opinion, feel an additional triumph in conquering the reverence of a critic habitually captious and satirical. No wonder, then, that an enthusiastic, self-distrusting youth should watch and wait before the closed secret of a sarcastic woman's face, as if it were the shrine of the doubtfully benignant deity who ruled his destiny. For a young enthusiast is unable to imagine the total negation in another mind of the emotions which are stirring his own. They may be feeble, latent, inactive, he thinks, but they are there. They may be called forth. Sometimes, in moments of happy hallucination, he believes they may be there in all the greater strength because he sees no outward sign of them. And this effect, as I have intimated, was heightened to its utmost intensity in me because Bertha was the only being who remained for me in the mysterious seclusion of soul that renders such youthful delusion possible. Doubtless there was another sort of fascination at work, that subtle physical attraction which delights in cheating our psychological predictions and in compelling the men who paint sylphs to fall in love with some bonne brave femme, heavy-heeled and freckled. Bertha's behavior towards me was such as to encourage all my illusions, to heighten my boyish passion, and make me more and more dependent on her smiles. Looking back with my present wretched knowledge, I conclude that her vanity and love of power were intensely gratified by the belief that I had fainted on first seeing her purely from the strong impression her person had produced on me. The most prosaic woman likes to believe herself the object of a violent, a poetic passion, and without a grain of romance in her, Bertha had that spirit of intrigue which gave piquancy to the idea that the brother of the man she meant to marry was dying with love and jealousy for her sake. That she meant to marry my brother was what I at that time did not believe, for though he was assiduous in his attentions to her, and I knew well enough that both he and my father 
had made up their minds to this result, there was not yet an understood engagement. There had been no explicit declaration. And Bertha, habitually, while she flirted with my brother and accepted his homage in a way that implied to him a thorough recognition of its intention, made me believe by the subtlest looks and phrases, feminine nothings which could never be quoted against her, that he was really the object of her secret ridicule, that she thought him, as I did, a coxcomb, whom she would have pleasure in disappointing. Me, she openly petted in my brother's presence, as if I were too young and sickly ever to be thought of as a lover. And that was the view he took of me. But I believe she must inwardly have delighted in the tremors into which she threw me, by the coaxing way in which she patted my curls, while she laughed at my quotations. Such caresses were always given in the presence of our friends, for when we were alone together— she affected a much greater distance towards me, and now and then took the opportunity, by words or slight actions, to stimulate my foolish, timid hope that she really preferred me. And why should she not follow her inclination? I was not in so advantageous a position as my brother, but I had a fortune. I was not a year younger than he was, and she was an heiress— who would soon be of age to decide for herself. The fluctuations of hope and fear, confined to this one channel, made each day in her presence a delicious torment. There was one deliberate act of hers which especially helped to intoxicate me. When we were at Vienna, her twentieth birthday occurred, and as she was very fond of ornaments— we all took the opportunity of the splendid jeweller's shops in that Teutonic Paris to purchase her a birthday present of jewellery. Mine, naturally, was the least expensive. It was an opal ring. The opal was my favourite stone, because it seemed to blush and turn pale as if it had a soul. I told Bertha so when I gave it her, and said that it was an emblem of the poetic nature, changing with the changing light of heaven and of woman's eyes. In the evening she appeared elegantly dressed, and wearing conspicuously all the birthday presents except mine. I looked eagerly at her fingers, but saw no opal. I had no opportunity of noticing this to her during the evening, but the next day, when I found her seated near the window, alone, after breakfast, I said, "'You scorn to wear my poor opal.' I should have remembered that you despised poetic natures, and should have given you coral, or turquoise, or some other opaque, unresponsive stone. Do I despise it? she answered, taking hold of a delicate gold chain, which she always wore round her neck, and drawing out the end from her bosom with my ring hanging to it. It hurts me a little, I can tell you, she said with her usual dubious smile to wear it in that secret place, and since your poetical nature is so stupid as to prefer a more public position, I shall not endure the pain any longer. She took off the ring with the chain and put it on her finger, smiling still, while the blood rushed to my cheeks, and I could not trust myself to say a word of entreaty that she would keep the ring where it was before. I was completely fooled by this, and for two days shut myself up in my own room, 
whenever Bertha was absent, that I might intoxicate myself afresh with the thought of this scene and all it implied. I should mention that during these two months, which seemed a long life to me from the novelty and intensity of the pleasures and pains I underwent, my diseased anticipation in other people's consciousness continued to torment me. Now it was my father, now it was my brother, now Mrs. Fillmore or her husband, and now our German courier, whose stream of thought rushed upon me like a ringing in the ears not to be got rid of, though it allowed my own impulses and ideas to continue their uninterrupted course. It was like a preternaturally heightened sense of hearing, making audible to one a roar of sound where others find perfect stillness. The weariness and disgust of this involuntary intrusion into other souls was counteracted only by my ignorance of Bertha, and my growing passion for her, a passion enormously stimulated, if not produced, by that ignorance. She was my oasis of mystery in the dreary desert of knowledge. I had never allowed my diseased condition to betray itself, or to drive me into any unusual speech or action, except once, when, in a moment of peculiar bitterness against my brother, I had forestalled some words which I knew he was going to utter, a clever observation which he had prepared beforehand. He had occasionally a slightly affected hesitation in his speech, and when he paused an instant after the second word, my impatience and jealousy impelled me to continue the speech for him, as if it was something we had both learned by rote. He coloured and looked astonished, as well as annoyed, and the words had no sooner escaped my lips than I felt a shock of alarm, lest such an anticipation of words, very far from being words, of course, easy to divine, should have betrayed me as an exceptional being, a sort of quiet energumen, whom every one, Bertha above all, would shudder at and avoid. But I magnified, as usual, the impression any word or deed of mine could produce on others, for no one gave any sign of having noticed my interruption as more than a rudeness, to be forgiven me on the score of my feeble, nervous condition. While this super-added consciousness of the actual was almost constant with me, I had never had a recurrence to that distinct prevision which I have described in relation to my first interview with Bertha, and I was waiting with eager curiosity to know whether or not my vision of Prague would prove to have been an instance of the same kind. A few days after the incident of the opal ring, we were paying one of our frequent visits to the Lichtenberg Palace. I could never look at many pictures in succession, for pictures— when they are at all powerful, affect me so strongly that one or two exhaust all my capability of contemplation. This morning I had been looking at Giorgione's picture of the cruel-eyed woman, said to be a likeness of Lucrezia Borgia. I had stood long alone before it, fascinated by the terrible reality of that cunning, relentless face, till I felt a strange, poisoned sensation— as if I had long been inhaling a fatal odour, and was just beginning to be conscious of its effects. Perhaps even then I should not have moved away, if the rest of the party had not returned to this room, 
and announced that they were going to the Belvedere Gallery to settle a bet which had arisen between my brother and Mr. Fillmore about a portrait. I followed them dreamily, and was hardly alive to what occurred till they had all gone up to the gallery, leaving me below, for I refused to come within sight of another picture that day. I made my way to the Grand Terrace, since it was agreed that we should saunter in the gardens when the dispute had been decided. I had been sitting here a short space, vaguely conscious of trim gardens, with the city and green hills in the distance, when, wishing to avoid the proximity of the sentinel, I rose and walked down the broad stone steps, intending to seat myself farther on in the gardens. Just as I reached the gravel walk, I felt an arm slipped within mine, and a light hand gently pressing my wrist. In the same instant a strange, intoxicating numbness passed over me, like the continuance or climax of the sensation I was still feeling from the gaze of Lucrezia Borgia. The gardens, the summer sky, the consciousness of Bertha's arm being within mine, all vanished, and I seemed to be suddenly in darkness, out of which there gradually broke a dim firelight, and I felt myself sitting in my father's leather chair in the library at home. I knew the fireplace, the dogs for the wood fire, the black marble chimney-piece with the white marble medallion of the dying Cleopatra in the centre. Intense and hopeless misery was pressing on my soul. The light became stronger, for Bertha was entering with a candle in her hand. Bertha, my wife, with cruel eyes, with green jewels and green leaves on her white ball-dress, every hateful thought within her present to me. Madman, idiot, why don't you kill yourself, then? It was a moment of hell. I saw into her pitiless soul, saw its barren worldliness, its scorching hate, and felt it clothe me round like an air I was obliged to breathe. She came with her candle and stood over me with a bitter smile of contempt. I saw the great emerald brooch on her bosom, a studded serpent with diamond eyes. I shuddered. I despised this woman with the barren soul and mean thoughts, but I felt helpless before her, as if she clutched my bleeding heart, and would clutch it till the last drop of life-blood ebbed away. She was my wife, and we hated each other. Gradually, the hearth, the dim library, the candlelight disappeared, seemed to melt away into a background of light, the green serpent with the diamond eyes remaining a dark image on the retina. Then I had a sense of my eyelids quivering, and the living daylight broke in upon me. I saw gardens, and heard voices. I was seated on the steps of the Belvedere Terrace, and my friends were round me. The tumult of mind into which I was thrown by this hideous vision made me ill for several days, and prolonged our stay at Vienna. I shuddered with horror, as the scene recurred to me, and it recurred constantly, with all its minutiae, as if they had been burnt into my memory. And yet such is the madness of the human heart under the influence of its immediate desires, I felt a wild, hell-braving joy 
that Bertha was to be mine. For the fulfilment of my former prevision concerning her first appearance before me left me little hope that this last hideous glimpse of the future was the mere diseased play of my own mind, and had no relation to external realities. One thing alone I looked towards as a possible means of casting doubt on my terrible conviction, the discovery that my vision of Prague had been false, and Prague was the next city on our route. Meanwhile, I was no sooner in Bertha's society again that I was as completely under her sway as before. What if I saw into the heart of Bertha the matured woman, Bertha my wife? Bertha the girl was a fascinating secret to me still. I trembled under her touch. I felt the witchery of her presence. I yearned to be assured of her love. The fear of poison is feeble against the sense of thirst. Nay, I was just as jealous of my brother as before, just as much irritated by his small, patronizing ways. For my pride, my diseased sensibility, were there as they had always been, and winced as inevitably under every offense as my eye winced from an intruding moat. The future, even when brought within the compass of feeling by a vision that made me shudder, had still no more than the force of an idea, compared with the force of present emotion, of my love for Bertha, of my dislike and jealousy towards my brother. It is an old story that men sell themselves to the tempter and sign a bond with their blood because it is only to take effect at a distant day, then rush on to snatch the cup their souls thirst after with an impulse not the less savage because there is a dark shadow beside them forevermore. There is no shortcut, no patent tramrod to wisdom. After all the centuries of invention, the soul's path lies through the thorny wilderness which must be still trodden in solitude, with bleeding feet, with sobs for help, as it was trodden by them of old time. My mind speculated eagerly, on the means by which I should become my brother's successful rival, for I was still too timid, in my ignorance of Bertha's actual feeling, to venture on any step that would urge from her an avowal of it. I thought I should gain confidence even for this, if my vision of Prague proved to have been voracious, and yet the horror of that certitude. Behind the slim girl Bertha, whose words and looks I watched for, whose touch was bliss, there stood continually that Bertha with the fuller form, the harder eyes, the more rigid mouth, with the barren, selfish soul laid bare, no longer a fascinating secret, but a measured fact, urging itself perpetually on my unwilling sight. Are you unable to give me your sympathy, you who react this? Are you unable to imagine this double consciousness at work within me, flowing on like two parallel streams, which never mingle their waters and blend into a common hue? Yet you must have known something of the presentiments that spring from an insight at war with passion, and my visions were only like presentiments intensified to horror. You have known the powerlessness of ideas before the might of impulse— 
and my visions, when once they had passed into memory, were mere ideas, pale shadows that beckoned in vain, while my hand was grasped by the living and the loved. In after days I thought with bitter regret that if I had foreseen something more or something different, if instead of that hideous vision which poisoned the passion it could not destroy, or if even along with it I could have had a foreshadowing of that moment when I looked on my brother's face for the last time, some softening influence would have been shed over my feelings towards him. Pride and hatred would surely have been subdued into pity, and the record of those hideous sins would have been shortened. But this is one of the vain thoughts with which we men flatter ourselves. We try to believe that the egoism within us would have easily been melted, and that it was only the narrowness of our knowledge which hemmed in our generosity, our awe, our human piety, and hindered them from submerging our hard indifference to the sensations and emotions of our fellows. Our tenderness and self-renunciation seem strong when our egoism has had its day, when, after our mean striving for a triumph that is to be another's loss, the triumph comes suddenly, and we shudder at it, because it is held out by the chill hand of death. Our arrival in Prague happened at night, and I was glad of this, for it seemed like a deferring of the terribly decisive moment, to be in the city for hours without seeing it. As we were not to remain long in Prague, but to go on speedily to Dresden, it was proposed that we should drive out the next morning and take a general view of the place, as well as visit some of its specially interesting spots, before the heat became oppressive, for we were in August, and the season was hot and dry. But it happened that the ladies were rather late at their morning toilet, and to my father's politely repressed but perceptible annoyance, we were not in the carriage till the morning was far advanced. I thought with a sense of relief as we entered the Jews' quarter, where we were to visit the old synagogue, that we should be kept in this flat, shut-up part of the city until we should all be too tired and too warm to go farther, and so we should return without seeing more than the streets through which we had already passed. That would give me another day's suspense. Suspense, the only form in which a fearful spirit knows the solace of hope. But, as I stood under the blackened, groined arches of that old synagogue, made dimly visible by the seven thin candles in the sacred lamp, while our Jewish Cicerone reached down the book of the law and read to us in its ancient tongue, I felt a shuddering impression that this strange building, with its shrunken lights, this surviving withered remnant of medieval Judaism, was of a peace with my vision. Those darkened, dusty Christian saints, with their loftier arches and their larger candles, needed the consolatory scorn with which they might point to a more shriveled death in life than their own. As I expected, when we left the Jews' quarters, the elders of our party wished to return to the hotel. But now, instead of rejoicing in this, as I had done beforehand, I felt a sudden overpowering impulse to go on at once to the bridge, and put an end to the suspense I had been wishing to protract.
I declared with unusual decision that I would get out of the carriage and walk on alone. They might return without me. My father, thinking this merely a sample of my usual poetic nonsense, objected that I should only do myself harm by walking in the heat. But when I persisted, he said angrily that I might follow my own absurd devices, but that Schmidt, our courier, must go with me. I assented to this, and set off with Schmidt towards the bridge. I had no sooner passed from under the archway of the grand old gate leading to the bridge than a trembling seized me, and I turned cold under the midday sun. Yet I went on. I was in search of something, a small detail which I remembered with special intensity as part of my vision. There it was, the patch of rainbow light on the pavement transmitted through a lamp in the shape of a star. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Lifted Veil, Part 1 of 2, by George Eliot. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.